Okay, well, uh, good evening and welcome. My name is Anne Phillips and I'll be chairing this uh, public lecture, which is um, the first of this year in the annual series of public lectures that we run under the Ralph Miliband programme, which is a programme which honours the, uh, the work and the legacy of Ralph Miliband, who taught at LSE for many years and who both through his teaching and his writing has inspired many to try to work out what's wrong with British politics in order to attempt to put it right. Um, the, our lecture tonight, which is the first in a series uh, on the theme of nations and borders, has been given by Professor Andrew Gamble, who's going to talk to us about uh, social democracy and the nation after the crash. Uh, but I first want to just ask Patrick Diamond from the Policy Network, which is co-sponsoring uh, this particular lecture, to say a few things about the Policy Network. Uh, thanks, Anne. Well, uh, good evening, everybody. And let me just start by um, saying um, I'm obviously Patrick Diamond. I'm the Vice Chair of Policy Network, and um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I want, on behalf of Policy Network, to thank uh, the Ralph Miliband Programme for hosting tonight's event. Obviously, I don't need to go into details, but it's a great pleasure to be hosting an event associated with Ralph Miliband um, and doing uh, honour to the legacy of, of his work. Um, I'd also like to thank the events team here at the LSE. Um, I'd like to thank, of course, Professor Anne Phillips for moder moderating uh, tonight's lecture and discussion, and thanks, of course, also to Professor Andrew Gamble. Um, Andrew's lecture draws on a chapter which he has uh, written for this recently published volume uh, which is called Progressive Politics After the Crash. The theme of the book is twofold really. Um, the first kind of key theme uh, of the book is um, why has the crash not led to um, a resurgence of support for social democratic parties and we look at this question in some depth. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, we also look at the question of what are the alternative frameworks which are emerging um, by which we might develop um, a new framework for uh, centre-left governance after the crisis. Um, I think Andrew's chapter explores more specifically uh, some of the issues around how the left of centre can develop a new politics of economic competence. Um, if you enjoy tonight's uh, lecture, which I'm sure you will, you can, of course, consider buying the book. Um, I've um, just heard from the publisher that Andrew will be signing copies afterwards, which gives you an, uh, an extra incentive uh, to buy a copy. So uh, thanks uh, so much again to the LSE and to Anne and to Andrew, and I hope you enjoy the lecture. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Patrick. So just before I ask Andrew to start his lecture, just to say a few things about him. Uh, Andrew Gamble is Professor of Politics at the University of Cambridge. Um, and he's someone who, as well as being a very rigorous scholar, is also, uh, also a public, a public intellectual who's helped shape political debate not only through his books, but through uh, his contributions to uh, policy debates, through his uh, co-editorship of uh, the Political Quarterly, New Political Economy, um, and uh, I've noticed also through his uh, frequent blogs. 
Um, his, his many books include uh, Between Europe and America, The Future of British Politics, The Spectre at the Feast, Capitalist Crisis and the Politics of Recession. And I gather he's currently working on a book which has the rather gloomy title of Crisis Without End. I think one, one recurrent characteristic of Andrew's writings is that he's someone who um, very much thinks that the, the political cannot be understood except within the context of the economy, but also that a great deal of what we understand as economics and economic policy needs itself to be understood as political. His analyses are always perceptive, and I, I think tonight's lecture will, will be no exception. So just, just something uh, briefly on the structure. Andrew's going to talk for uh, about 45 minutes, um, and we should then have um, half an hour or so for a question and answer session, and we'll have roving mics uh, so that uh, everyone will be able to hear your questions. Um, so with no further ado, um, if I can just uh, invite... Professor Andrew Gamble to give his lecture. Well, thanks very much, Anne, and thanks, Patrick, for those kind words. Um, what I want to... This uh, is a, a Ralph Miliband lecture, and I, I thought we couldn't really uh, let the moment pass without uh, saying something about... Ralph Miliband, um, who uh, has been in the news recently in ways which uh, I'm sure he could never have imagined or, uh, or expected. Uh, he was presented as a man who hated Britain, and there was talk, much talk in the Daily Mail about the evil legacy of Marxism. And what we saw in this uh, treatment of Ralph Miliband in the Daily Mail was uh, the elision of Soviet communism, Marxism, socialism, indeed almost all centre-left ideas. Um, and even the uh, proposal of Ed Miliband at the Labour Party conference to freeze the price of gas for 15 months seemed to get rolled up in this uh, catalogue of uh, infamy, the return of Red Ed. It reminded me of... Uh, a much earlier episode uh, after the uh, Paris Commune, Karl Marx, who uh, up till then almost nobody in Europe had heard of, uh, he became briefly uh, notorious um, in some of the press as the Red Doctor. And um, there was a, uh, um, a prominent Liberal MP who went to see Marx in, in London. And uh, um, I'm not quite sure what they talked about. Probably he had to endure a long uh, lecture on, the, uh, on Russian ground rent. Um, but what uh, the Liberal MP came away and, and, and said was afterwards, he said, uh, he said, well, whatever else happens, it won't be Dr. Marx uh, who turns Europe upside down. And it's, it's one of the ironies of the this whole Daily Mail affair and the attack upon Ralph Miliband that uh, Marx himself was as a young man was a radical journalist in the 1840s when he um, was editor of the uh, Neue Rheinische Zeitung and uh, he used to rail against the state, the Prussian state and against the censorship 
so Paul Dacre should perhaps dig out some of those early uh, uh, some of Marx's defence of a, of a free press and uh, uh, publish them against the uh, the iniquity, iniquities of Leveson. I think the important point about Ralph Miliband was that he was never a supporter of totalitarianism. One of the best uh, the pieces I most enjoyed actually uh, written about the whole affair was actually by Peter Hitchens in the mail um, in which Peter Hitchens who himself made a journey from uh, Marxism to where he is now he described it as a conservative patriotic and Christian but he in the piece on Ralph Miliband he did point out that actually um, there was no substance in the uh, in the charges which had been laid against him in the uh, in the Daily Mail, and that's it's a wider point though. It's that for someone like Ralph Miliband, socialism had to be democratic, or it wasn't socialism. That was the whole basis of his uh, of his politics, and the context of that was one of the big debates of the 20th century which began with the question of whether capitalism was compatible with democracy and it ended with the question of whether socialism was compatible with democracy. We know a lot about the second part of that debate. We're not so familiar now with the first part but it was a very real uh, debate and it, that was the context in which the young Ralph Miliband um, uh, grew up. So if the uh, headline in the Daily Mail had read the man who hated capitalism it would perhaps have been a little more accurate and might have passed without comment. But the point is that Miliband didn't attack Britain or democracy what he did attack was capitalism and he belonged to that generation which feared that democracy was in danger of being destroyed um, and as one or two people have rather disobligingly pointed out the Daily Mail does know a thing or two about this because the, uh, the first Lord Rothermere um, famously published that headline in the Daily Mail, Hurrah for the Black Shirts in 1934. Um, that's been known for a very long time, something I wasn't actually aware of until Simon Sharma uh, pointed it out in the Financial Times, was that uh, there, were, there are these new files which uh, were placed in the National Archive in 2005, files from the British Secret Service, which had been kept secret up till now, which reveal that uh, in 1938, Viscount Rothermere, uh, Lord Rothermere, I should say, um, uh, flew to Berlin to congratulate Hitler on the invasion of the Sudetenland and urge him to invade Romania. So, was Lord Rothermere a man? who hated Britain? Well, no. He was just, he just had a very different vision of what Britain should be and who its friends 
should be. And that's one of the problems with nationalism. There isn't just one way to love your nation. A lot has been made about how could Ralph Miliband be someone who hated Britain given his war service, given his residence. But I say, much more, actually more important than those things, just look at his writings. He wrote almost exclusively about Britain and British politics. And he engaged in British politics. He, uh, in the 1980s, he used to tramp the country with Tony Benn, addressing lots of uh, strange rallies up and down uh, the land. And he also founded the Socialist Register, which is uh, celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. But for the Daily Mail, it's the fact that Ralph Miliband was a socialist, which means that he has nothing to do with Britain, that socialism is the attempt to treat socialism as an alien creed, as not British. And indeed, of course, the Daily Mail is not very keen on liberalism either. And it's this, uh, it's this slide, this no step stopping point between mild forms of social democracy and Soviet totalitarianism and all points in between which is part of the eclipse of socialism which we have been living through in the last 20 or 30 years. And it's easy to forget now what a powerful rising movement socialism used to be. Friedrich Hayek believed that the socialist century uh, began in 1848 and ended in 1948, and that since then the tide has been flowing uh, away from it. And certainly in 1989 and 1991, when, the, when communism collapsed in Eastern Europe and the, the Cold War ended, uh, there was much talk about the rebirth, the revival of liberalism and the uh, the triumph of uh, capitalism and democracy. Perry Anderson wrote a famous essay in uh, 1992 called The Ends of History in which he speculated about what the future of socialism would be as a set of ideas, as a doctrine. And he uh, suggested four possibilities, four ends of history. Uh, the first was oblivion, that there Socialism could just disappear without trace, leaving no lasting legacy, just becoming a historical curiosity. Or, he suggested it might be uh, transvaluation. It might, after an interval, after a long interval, it might take on a new form and a new, in a new context. Or it might be the case that socialism would be subject to mutation, that there'd be no break in continuity, but socialism would adapt and there would be incremental change and it would gradually move into something else. Or finally, the final possibility that Anderson suggested was redemption, that uh, as liberalism before it, there might at some point in different circumstances, in a different context, be a rebirth of its ideas. 
He didn't hold out much hope for the latter, but what he did say was that he thought at the very least it would need a new world crisis to uh, make socialism relevant again. And of course in 2008 a new world crisis did erupt, a, a world crisis which uh, um, in its scale the only other episode which matches it is the 1930s, although fortunately it hasn't had as yet the consequences which the 1930s crisis had. And yet in this in the midst of this crisis, we're five years now into this crisis, there are few signs of a return or rebirth of socialism. Indeed, the centre-left, all forms of it, seem to be <coughs> hovering between mutation and transvaluation in Anderson's terms, flir and flirting at times with oblivion. Socialism still has much to say about social justice, about human rights and public services, but it no longer has very much to say about capitalism. And that's a weakness, a real weakness when the uh, world economy is in, and the Western economies in particular, are in such, uh, are in such trouble. Now, why did socialism decline from its uh, heyday? The uh, two conventional explanations, two traditional explanations, the first one is that it underestimated nationalism. Marx and Engels famously wrote the workers have no country, you cannot take from them what they have not got. But that idea that socialism has nothing to do with nationalism may have been true of some 19th century radical exiles, but social democratic movements, which after all um, have been so important in the history of socialism in the 20th century, social democratic movements have been intensely national with their emphasis on national community, the national economy, national protection. Just think of the National Health Service. So many of the symbols of social democracy have been, uh, have been national. And the criticism has often been that social democracy has been too national, not, not insufficiently national, too national, not international enough. The second familiar criticism is that socialists misunderstood capitalism by putting such emphasis on the idea of replacing capitalism with an entirely different system. Colin Crouch in his new book writes that that is now a thing of the past. Capitalism now is recognized by socialists as the only complex system known to us that can provide an efficient and innovative economy. And yet, whilst I broadly agree with that statement, I think it's also a mistake to think that the left had in the past just one simple view 
of capitalism. Left was always very ambivalent about capitalism. You find that in Karl Marx, you find it in Ralph Miliband. It's why even a label like the man who hated capitalism would be, uh, would be wrong about Ralph Miliband. It would certainly be wrong about, about Marx. Marx certainly hated the oppression, the poverty, the suffering that was associated with, with capitalism. But he also applauded the progressive character of capitalism, its ability to increase wealth, develop new technologies, to spread itself across the world, to create the material foundations for a different kind of society. So that Marx was an enthusiast for the achievements of capitalism, even if he deplored some of the social arrangements that, and, and the power relationships which capitalism fostered. And I think there's a different way of setting up the problem which confronts the left and centre-left. And that is that we need to think about, in thinking about, about the basic problems of modern politics, we need to think about the two great drivers of the modern world. On the one hand, the forces making for economic globalization, for an integrated world economy, for interdependence and interconnectedness, the flowing of, of goods and, and, and people and investment and finance across borders, the movement towards one world, which has been underway, um, sometimes unevenly and sometimes with interruptions, in the last two centuries. And on the other hand, the other great driver, the international state system, with its uh, national uh, jurisdictions and its national communities, national identities, national legitimacies. And these two very different organizing principles of our modern world are also what modern politics has to come to terms with. The centre-left has to find ways of an effective politics for both of these two spheres. And so too, of course, does the centre-right. It's just that in recent time, the centre-right has often seemed more agile at uh, finding ways to combine these two than has the, uh, the centre-left. And part of that is clearly because some of the frameworks which the left and centre-left used to use are no longer relevant or accurate. Um, one of these is about class. That the, not all the assumptions about class are incorrect or wrong today, but some of them certainly are, and one of them which um, Eric Hobsbawm picked out um, many years ago now, that the assumption that there was some kind of inevitability about the triumph of labor movements in Western Europe and other advanced uh, economies, that, Hobsbawm argued, could no longer be sustained. And yet, that assumption that somehow mass unions and mass political parties 
were an unstoppable combination which would power uh, the left to supremacy in national politics that the combination of universal suffrage once that had been won and the Fordist economies of the uh, uh, modern capitalist era would deliver socialism or would deliver uh, political power to social democracy that has been undone by the uh, the huge changes that have taken place within capitalism the, the, the transformation of capitalism worldwide and coming with it the transformation of electorates so that the old the, the assumption that social democracy could look forward to the time when its natural supporters its core voters were the majority that's gone and modern electorates are far more fragmented class is no longer in the way that it used to be through certain types of organization the way in which social democracy could triumph and with the shrinking in manufacturing jobs even the growth of public sector jobs um, this is an insufficient replacement for the, uh, um, the putative majority which has been lost and of course the uh, parties of the centre right have always been adept at finding divide and rule tactics so but the old interest base of left politics has been severely eroded and there have been a number of responses on the centre-left to finding ways of dealing with that but it's nothing close to the, uh, the, those old certainties has been regained the second framework that is no longer relevant or accurate is the old idea about the state and the belief in social democracy that extending the powers of the state over the market taming the market creating countervailing power opposing the general interest to the oligarchy that this was the essence of the task of social democracy Karl Polanyi with his famous double movement movement from market freedom to the imposition of collective security on modern economies that has been thrown up in the air since the 1970s by suddenly this revival of market uh, liberalism placing the left back on the defensive and now in the 2010s following this new great convulsion in the international economy as I've uh, already suggested we still seem to be a long way from uh, any kind of confident revival of the centre-left if you look across Europe um, most of the uh, most of the parties that are 
in power across Europe are parties of the centre-right. And although there have been some successes of the centre-left, predominantly this period since the 2008 crash has been ones in which uh, centre-left incumbent governments have been ousted or have not managed to oust the centre-right incumbents and it's been centre, centre the, the, the tide has flowed towards the centre-right. There's one or two exceptions to that, but that's the predominant pattern. So that we've had 30 years of economic liberalisation and some people were expecting that now this might be we might be seeing the beginnings of the reimposition of collective control. But there's clearly another possibility in what we're living through, and that is that uh, actually we haven't reached the terminus of this process of economic liberalisation, that actually uh, the neoliberal wave has not yet run its course and that what we could experience in the next phase is deeper economic liberalisation. We shouldn't just assume that there's some kind of uh, swing of the pendulum which means that over these long periods that uh, um, there should be a swing back. If there is to be a swing back it has to be worked for and argued for um, Politically, and there has to be a very clear agenda. It just won't happen um, spontaneously. And so the big question, it seems to me, for the centre-left is whether it's possible to go beyond neoliberalism and economic liberalisation to a, a new stage in the development of capitalism. In the last 20 years or so, the centre-left broadly accepted the shape of the international political economy. It accepted a, a kind of modified form of embedded liberalism that was uh, characteristic of the, of the earlier period of the 1950s and 1960s, in which uh, uh, within a broadly neoliberal framework, parties of the centre-left in government tried to pursue distinctive national agendas so that they had redistributive goals or they had goals on uh, extending human rights, um, goals on managing their societies in a different way, but they did not seek to uh, change the basic relationships which had been established in the 1970s and 80s of national economies with the international economy. And yet the increasing integration of markets which we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years has also required increasing transnational governments. But finding that transnational governance has become extremely difficult and it's become particularly difficult in this period since the crash. International negotiations are characterised much more by deadlocks than by, uh, uh, than by agreements. 
and in many areas the uh, the world is in danger of uh, sliding back into uh, much more a much more fragmented set of relationships it's true that the penalties for leaving the international market system are now even greater than they used to be in the past so that despite the pressure which some countries have been placed under a country like Greece for instance Greece is still within the international market system despite all the problems that some countries have experienced and the imposition of austerity programs and the level to which unemployment has gone the amount of poverty and so forth no country has yet broken with the international market system so to that extent the transnational governance arrangements are still holding but they're under fantastic pressure and the question is whether um, without some revival of the international economy and not a, a short-lived recovery but a, a, um, a long sustained recovery whether it's going to be possible to hold in place many of the transnational governance arrangements that um, were achieved in the past and the problem for the centre-left is that uh, the politics of a centre-left is very firmly based on the idea that international cooperation is needed and underpins domestic uh, prosperity national self-sufficiency is not at all appealing as a uh, as a governing strategy but then the question is how is it possible to move towards a reformed international market system um, which can take account of the changed balance of power within the international economy and actually reach serious agreements on things like trade and, and climate change and other areas where currently there is deadlock nobody supposes at the, at the moment that there is any prospect of global governance in the sense of substantive policy at the global level actually succeeding but the task is rather different the task is how to uh, preserve and reform international rules which are fairer for the whole international community at the same time allowing nation states the autonomy which they need to pursue their own trade-offs at the national level and the alternative if, if those sorts of international de deals cannot be made to work the alternative is still a slide into national controls various sorts of protectionism bilateralism all of which will heighten the risk of conflicts between states it seems to me it would be very foolish to be complacent about the situation that we're in we have by no means come through this crisis yet we have no by no means ensured the basis for um, for new prosperity and the 
the great risk is that electorates will grow impatient with elites which are incapable of delivering um, d delivering improvements in living standards and instead appear to be locked in interminable negotiations with other elites. So the risk of populist rebellion spreading, not just in Europe but elsewhere, we see a populist rebellion at the moment in the United States itself. All of this reminds us of the importance of the nation of national politics, that the, the only the, the condition for a successful politics of the international economy has also to be rooted in a successful politics of the nation. And we need to find new ways to engage with the politics of uh, crisis and austerity. The centre-right, as I've already mentioned, has been highly successful uh, very often in its discourse in bringing together a defence of a nation-state at the same time as a defence of free markets and of presenting the public household as if it were a private household. The left desperately needs a new imagination about the public household the common management of the nation's affairs. So what we have at the present time is this very strong resilience of neoliberalism. There was a brief window after the crash, after the bubble burst and the markets collapsed when it seemed as though there was going to be a call for new collective controls over the markets. But then normality quickly reasserted itself and the urge to return to business as usual proved irresistible. And so we moved from a banking crisis into a debt crisis. It was relabeled a debt crisis and therefore a crisis of the state, of the public, of public sectors. The economic slump meant there was a sharp fall in the public revenues and therefore a sharp rise in the proportionate cost of the public sector. We were plunged into a fiscal crisis. And this shouldn't surprise us because this is the default position of a market economy. It moves in su at such moments always back towards retrenchment and austerity. Always attempt to restore the previous balance. This is the familiar crisis of the tax state which Schumpeter wrote about almost 100 years ago. And the, the political agility of the centre-right is to seize upon the politics of domestic retrenchment, in Britain's case, putting the blame on previous governments, developing new dividing lines over who gets what, when and how, new language about shirkers and strivers, immigrants, welfare. The politics of the 
the, the centre-left, in order to counter this, needs to develop a whole new politics of the public household. At the moment, it's found itself on the wrong side of most of the arguments that have been developed in the last uh, four or five years. And the problem facing the centre-left in developing such a politics is that as I've already mentioned, it needs a politics of the international economy as well as a politics of the public household. The, uh, the centre-left has accepted uh, the logic, it's given up the attempt to try and create a relatively self-contained national economy. But in the course of doing that, it also abandoned many policy levers which can provide the economic security for its citizens. So that you only have to think of immigration and the effect on working class communities and then the ease with which the centre-left comes to be identified with the liberal cosmopolitan elite. And again, another dividing line is created in our domestic politics. So this new politics of the public household has to address uh, all those issues in order to develop new ideas about the common good and common interests, new ideas about markets and how markets that the rules which shape the governance of markets and states needs to be reformed. And that's where uh, an issue like living standards, which has been much in the news, comes back in um, because one of the things about, I mean, I don't want to discuss the particular um, proposal that been made, but I think the issue of living standards is an absolutely central one for the centre-left to address and for a politics of the public household to address because of the, f the facts we know about how stagnant wages have been added now to the, the cuts in the social wage which are taking place. Because it's clear that this recovery is not like recent recoveries. It's very much a stop-start recovery. There was already a, there was a strong recovery in 20, um, 2010 and 2011. That then petered out in 2012. We now have another very strong recovery uh, at the end of 20, uh, in, in 2013, going into 2014. We don't yet know what the fate of this recovery is going to be. But suppose some of the economic pessimists are right and that there's going to be very limited growth of living standards even if Western economies recover. How are societies going to adjust and how will social democrats adjust to that prospect? There is a sense that our political economy, some of the basic elements of our political economy may be changing. That uh, 
inequality will it will the kind of inequality which has been tolerated in the last 30 years the burgeoning inequality will it be so tolerable in an economy in which the living standards of the majority are no longer rising but here's the dilemma the dilemma is that to maintain the revenues to fund the social wage and I think the social wage is a better term than than welfare which always then leads you to just talk about welfare recipients but the policies to find the revenues to fund the social wage they seem to point in the direction of requiring more immigration not less immigration more free trade more inward capital investment more EU integration to maintain political support at the present time in national politics seems to require going in the opposite direction on all those uh, on all those issues that's the circle that's the very difficult circle which um, uh, the centre-left is is trying to square of course there is the Scottish solution <laughs> which Alex Salmon has uh, which is to uh, claim a national resource and uh, establish an oil fund and uh, uh, a capital fund which can subsidize the social wage and of course some of you will know that Norway with just such a, uh, um, a capital fund Norway tops the uh, human development index of the uh, of the United Nations but of course for most economies that is not uh, that is not uh, an option available to them so I'll just conclude on this note which is that it seems to me that the, the problem for the centre-left and it's, a, it's also as it happens also a problem for the centre-right so I'm not suggesting this is just something which only the centre-left have to worry about it seems to me that there are three very big questions three very big issues which threaten Western prosperity and which need some very deep thinking and political action if they're to be averted the first is the consequences of the shifts in the balance of the international economy and the international state system and whether a way can be found to develop a truly multilateral and multipolar world which can underpin the prosperity of all the countries within it the second is the growth conundrum the question of growing inequality the stagnation of living standards the apparent exhaustion of uh, um, of basic technologies that is underpinning the slowdown that in, in, in the Western economies that we've been seeing and finally the third problem is the democratic disconnect which has many features but one of the most serious and which nobody is finding any real way at the moment of addressing is the disconnect between political elites and citizens and this now has so many manifestations and I fear has a very long way to run. Thank you very much.
Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Um, we have uh, three roving mics, one on this side, one on this side, and one uh, upstairs as well. Um, so please, uh, if, you, if you want to ask a question, put up your hand, but don't speak until you've got the mic. If you could say um, who you are and keep your questions as... Um, uh, direct and to the point as possible and I should have said uh, before Andrew gave his lecture that if you want to tweet anyone that the hashtag for this event is LSE Nation. So um, uh, who would like to ask a question? So start with uh, <coughs> Excuse me. On your last point, do you think voting should be obligatory? Sorry, that... On your last point, do you think voting, oh, voting. should be obligatory? Um, I have actually, I mean, it's funny you ask that question because um, I have actually been thinking quite a lot about this issue. It wasn't something I thought of thinking about, but it was a, a, a student, an undergraduate student, actually, um, who wants to write an essay on exactly that question. Why did some democracies have, um, uh, have compulsory voting, and, and why do others not? And why, um, wh why do national democracies... Uh, think it's, it's, it's right to compel their citizens to do certain things, like conscript them for, to, to fight in wars and so on, but don't think it's right to uh, compel them to, to vote. Um, even if you supplied a, a box at the bottom saying none of the above so that people could, could say that they didn't want to vote for any of the, uh, any, any of the parties. Um, it is interesting, Australia introduced compulsory voting in the 1920s after a general election in which uh, uh, voting plunged to a very low level and they were very concerned about the consequences of that and they've kept a compulsory voting system ever, um, ever since so that it, uh, it does seem to me that... Um, we have got to find ways of revitalizing democracy. Uh, I mean, I would hesitate about proposing compulsory voting because you have to be sure that if you propose a change like that, that actually you're not going to get um, huge civil disobedience as a result. So you have it, there has to be a, a consensus already existing um, across the society that actually this is this would be a, uh, a good idea. But I think there's lots of other ways. I mean, uh, other ways of just making sure that uh, everybody that, uh, uh, that wants to vote is able to vote, is, is registered to vote. The, the kind of thing that goes on in so many democracies where people are actually discouraged in various ways from voting, in some countries there's even suppression of people's ability to register. Um, so I th for me, the, 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 the critical first step is to make sure that uh, um, everybody that wants to participate in democratic politics is, is able to do so. Otherwise, I do fear that we, um, we face declining interest, declining... Uh, declining participation, um, that is 
that, that's very dangerous because it doesn't mean that politics stops. Politics still goes on. It just means that uh, large numbers of people uh, no longer seek to influence what the decisions that are um, that are made, which are going to shape their lives. Um, so one up there at the top. I'm Caroline Welch and I'm an ordinary citizen. Um, you don't mention, something that occurs to me, correct me if I'm wrong, there doesn't seem to be a shortage of wealth. Um, looking around, certainly in London, at the price of some properties, um, looking at some of the, the sort of um, expenses that people are able to make, um, in terms of, I say, yachts and things like that, um, and looking at the general figures, there doesn't seem to be really a, a difficulty. It seems to me to be um, not a problem of absolute um, funding, wealth, whatever you want to call it. It seems to me to be a distributional problem. Um, the, um, the well-off seems to be pulling away from the rest of us um, in, 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 a, in a very spectacular way. Um, I'd be interested to hear um, whether, whether you have any thoughts on this issue. Well, I think, um, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, inequality has been in increasing very markedly for the last 20, 30 years in, in uh, um, uh, many of the uh, um, advanced economies. So the... Uh, and that was uh, um, uh, that, that was justified, or at least it wasn't made a, a, a major issue, because so long as the um, living standards in general were rising, uh, it was thought that that could be uh, that could be accommodated, and so uh, redistribution as such. Um, Began to be spoken of much less by the by the centre left than it had than it had previously, and the emphasis shifted instead to uh, increasing um, increasing the rate of growth and 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 distributing the uh, the proceeds of growth rather than uh, distributing existing holdings of uh, holdings of wealth. But as I said at the end of my talk, I think the uh, I think there is a real problem in Western economies now in, in, uh, because the, uh, um, the, the signs of this slowdown in the growth of living standards, it, it's, uh, we've become particularly aware of it since the, the crash in 2008, but actually it predates the crash by considerable distance. The, 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 um, Alan Milburn's report today is, is uh, locates it in, in, for the UK in 2003. There's, something similar is true for the, for the US and um, other economies. In other words, this is a deeper structural problem than just something which has been brought about by the uh, 
by the events of, the, of 2008, although that has certainly exacerbated the, the issue, um, and partly because it's quite clear that the, uh, the wealthiest and most privileged groups um, haven't, on the whole, suffered any reduction in their incomes. Their incomes are actually continuing to, um, uh, to, to, to expand, which, of course, I think does alter, I mean, it, it does alter the political context and the... Uh, um, the, the, the politics of these issues, but I think it's, uh, um, it's more than just talking about going back to a, a, um, a zero-sum kind of politics. There has actually to be uh, a much more clear-eyed addressing of the problems of how do you achieve fairness in a society in which inequality is continuing to increase and the living standards of the majority um, are, not, uh, are not rising. I think this is a, a, uh, um, this is a potentially, this could not only shift political attitudes but could shift policy in very interesting, uh, interesting directions. So I think redistribution um, uh, is going to come back, but perhaps not in in some of the ways which it uh, it did in the past. So one, one at the front, please. Thanks, Andrew. Um, Robert Wade. Um, I wonder to what extent do you think that uh, reform of political party financing is um, a central element in making democracies uh, more responsive to, let's say, the median voter preferences uh, rather than to the preferences of the wealthy. Do you, to what extent do you think that's a, a critical issue and to what extent do you think that there are ways of actually reforming political party finance in that way, um, given, for example, the fate of the report of the Committee on Standards in Public Life in the UK, November 2011. It was published with much fanfare. It set out a whole way, a whole set of ways to reduce the influence of big donors mm. on British party financing, and it died on the day of publication. Nothing more was heard of it, to general relief on the part of all the political parties. Mm. In other words, none of them wanted to touch this issue of political party financing certainly seems to me that this is a critical issue to bring about the kinds of changes you have in mind, but nobody wants to touch it, not even the centre-left parties. I agree. I mean, I, I, I think that's... Uh, I mean, this is, this is part of an agenda for the renewal of democracy, which I think is, uh, is critical. And I think until democracies confront this problem, that um, a... Uh, uh, a privileged and, and wholly unequal position has been given uh, to those uh, with, with wealth to influence the democratic process. Until that is, is properly um, addressed, then it's very difficult to see a real revival of, uh, of grassroots democracy. But of course, for that very reason, it's one of the hardest reforms actually to push because there are now there are such powerful vested interests to uh, um, fighting against it. And yet, I think you see in this in this altered landscape, um, it's precisely those sorts, these kinds of radical ideas, which now need to be floated because we now need to think about 
um, how are we going to restore the, uh, uh, a vibrant democracy in, uh, um, in, 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 uh, across Europe and in, and, and in other parts of the world? That the, uh, uh, everybody is agreed that democracy has, uh, um, has not fulfilled its promise and has stalled in all kinds of ways. That if there is dissatisfaction with the way in which um, democracy works, and one of the um, one of the most serious problems is the way in which the party political the the, the political parties operate and the way in which they their, their funding is is organised. I think uh, there is a number of radical ideas for changing that. Um, I think it's an essential part of the solution, and it's what a um, what a centre-left politics interested in politics of the public household could do, because that's an it's an essential part of that public household to get right. So uh, the yes, there. Thank you. Um, I'm Dorothy Smith from the European Policy Forum. Um, I wondered if you might agree that the daunting problems which do confront us globally now, notably population growth leading directly in fact to the climate change crisis as, as a Western civilization has been built upon carbon-based uh, energy, uh, mean that what we're experiencing now is in fact a manifestation of the limits to growth argument uh, put forward by the Club of Rome in the 1970s and that in order to overcome these problems we, we really need strong directional policy being applied by national governments and in particular by international agreements which as you, you rightly pointed out are greatly under strain at the moment and that this presents really a, a daunting challenge to democracy because what it means is persuading people in the West to actually accept lower living standards. Yeah, well, uh, that, that's... Um, I, I, I think it is daunting. I mean, I think it's not a return... I, I think the problem is not the way that the original authors of Limits to Growth conceptualised it. I mean, I think they, 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 they thought too much in terms of physical limits to, uh, to resources, and that's not the problem that we face. I mean, the problem... I mean, if, if, if that was the problem, it would be, it would be easier to communicate to, um, to democracies about what the, what the challenge was and what had to be done. The, the problem is that we, we face a... Uh, um, we face a threat which, uh, which is not immediate, but which exists um, uh, at some point hence, but which we may stumble into because we pass a tipping point um, and, and therefore may make our, uh, the difficulty of, uh, of dealing with the problem in the future much more difficult because we don't take precautionary measures now. And yet the, uh, the science isn't... Um, um, the, the science is, is, is clear about the direction, but the science is uncertain, and has to be uncertain, about the actual timing of the challenge that we face. Um, and that's, in a democracy, 
that is a very, very hard message, as you, as you rightly point out, to communicate. And particularly in a time of uh, when living standards are not uh, rising, for many people they've been falling. Um, at such a time to, um, to ask for major sacrifices for a threat which is not immediate but further down the line, this is, uh, um, this is extremely difficult to accomplish. Um, and, and that's why some people, of course, then get very pessimistic about the whole, uh, the, the whole scenario, that, that how can you, uh, under what circumstances, can you persuade um, democracies to think longer term and to, particularly on, on the, the, the time scale which is required for a problem like climate change when um, uh, everyone's needs are, um, are, are so much more immediate and when there are um, politicians and newspapers which are of course exploiting exactly that, uh, those, um, uh, th th those interests and those, those demands. Um, but again, I think it's, I mean, the, the, the challenge is a, is, a, is a daunting one, but it, it seems to me that it, it goes to, to what we've been talking about this evening, this, this, uh, this radical renewal of democracy is actually our, our, our best hope. Now, of course, it might not be sufficient, but um, in a way, if that doesn't work, well, then, you know, um, um, what's, what's going to work? We, we, um, we don't want to be saved by authoritarianism. Um, and uh, we have to try and find a way to make, um, to make democracy work for us in ways which uh, some of these problems can be addressed. But it seems to me we can only address them in, in, in terms of, of, of a whole discourse which takes into account fairness and, and, and equality and, and, and the sharing of burdens, which actually has a, um, uh, can actually identify ways in which even if living standards cannot, um, um, cannot increase, people are content that uh, the arrangements are the uh, um, are, are arrangements which, which, which they, they are prepared to support and, and vote for. So it's actually making a lot of things much more explicit than, uh, than, they, than they currently are. Will that be sufficient? I think it's only in that context um, that you can counter this huge problem of, um, of voter ignorance. Um, and, and lack of interest in politics. I think one of the greatest uh, problems we face is precisely that disengagement of so many citizens from the democratic <coughs> process, not just the act of not voting, but the act of, uh, of not actually being concerned with uh, um, political issues. And, and it's unless we can... Uh, unless those can be changed. Otherwise, we're always relying on political elites. And for the reasons I said at the end of the lecture, our problem is that the disconnect between political elites and national electorates 
is growing dangerously wide. We see it in so many different forums and we see the increasing attraction of simple populist messages which um, uh, take advantage of this divide. So issues which are complex get pushed up to the elite and <coughs> issues which are, which are simple get, are, are the subject of uh, messages to, um, to voters. And the centre-left has to find a way of overcoming that and changing the way in which our democracy works has to be a part of that. Okay. Um, now we're going to have an explosion of, of questions now, which I, uh, I may start grouping them um, just so that we can give maximum time. So, so you first, well, the two of you there first, right? Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Richard Lomax. I, I, was, I was thinking about the vocabulary of the left, which has really been purloined by the right. Um, people like uh, Orwell, um, the notion of a property-owning democracy, which really goes back to the Chartists, and even terminology like the withering away of the state, which was uh, trumpeted at one stage by Keith Joseph. Um, I, I wonder the, the extent to which uh, we're really failing to recognize that the adoption of that vocabulary by the right represents a long-term triumph of ours and whether we might do something to try to recover that vocabulary as ours. Our okay, so don't answer that mm -hmm. until the second question. Hello, I'm Aaron Saltman from UCL, just up the road. Um, I had a, a point and perhaps a question about this idea of the disconnect between political elite and parties and the average citizen and perhaps the misconstruing of the term populism as something that has perhaps been hijacked or utilized more efficiently by more radical and often right-wing entities. Um, and the idea that perhaps the vehicle for connecting the people from with the elite that used to be there, such as uh, unions uh, or other um, connecting devices, don't exist as much as they used to. And I'm wondering why the center-left or other mainstream political parties aren't utilizing more grassroots populist tactics or connecting themselves with intermediate vehicles to connect the people. Because it's not perhaps just people disconnecting from politics. People are still politicized, but it becomes on a localized or more tangible level. And it's perhaps the failure of political parties or the political elite to not utilize the vehicles available to them or re-hijack the populist tendencies to reconnect people to mainstream or more complex ideas. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, the um, oh yeah, the language of, of, of the left. Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting question actually. Um, uh, I mean, I think we're all dissatisfied with political language these days. That the uh, um, it's this problem that that. Uh, so often it gets terms get emptied of meaning and and uh, terms get used um, in so many different ways and, and appropriated by so many different groups that it becomes very hard to uh, um, 
to rely on on particular uh, meanings. So, and I think the I think you're you're right that that so much of the language of modern politics was contributed from the left and the centre left, um, and the. Uh, uh, a lot of it has been pilfered and, and used in, in ways which it was never intended to be used and so forth. But I think this is, uh, this is now a condition of the world which we're, we're in, um, which, is not going to, uh, which is not going to change, but it means that we have to find um, new and, and, and more creative ways of, uh, of, of reclaiming certain terms and, and creating new frameworks of, uh, of meaning. Um, and I think we shouldn't be uh, afraid of that. I mean, I, I think uh, it seems to me, to give you just one example, it seems to me absolutely no reason why um, we should give up the word socialism. Um, the attempt to, uh, to give a particular definition to socialism, so it only means one thing, is obviously completely false to the whole history of, uh, of socialism and, and, and socialist ideas. And yet... Uh, um, to read some publications, that uh, that is precisely the attempt that is that, that that is being made, so that socialism is turned into a pejorative term. And I think uh, uh, there are other examples like that where actually um, we should just be prepared to. Uh, I mean, there would be limits to this. <laughs> some words, I, some uh, terms, I wouldn't uh, propose to rehabilitate. But the, uh, I do think there, the, the, there is a lot of room for creative thinking of, of the left about how we use language and, and uh, how we, we, we create our own meanings and refuse to allow uh, meanings which, are, which come from elsewhere to be imposed upon things that, that we want to talk about. So I think that's a basic part of political practice. And the, the point about populism and, and, and grassroots movements, I think that's very interesting too, because the, uh, and of course it's absolutely right that, 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 that um, and it's one of the more hopeful, um, the hopeful things in our contemporary politics, that uh, but a lot of people who don't participate in uh, informal party politics are nevertheless very engaged in other kinds of politics, other kinds of grassroots politics and social movements and, and political movements. Um, and, the, and there are new ways which people have for um, communicating with one another and, and linking up and so forth. So that, um, um, so that I, uh, as to why p mainstream political parties do not pay more attention to this, well, there's a lot of, they talk a lot about wanting to engage more um, uh, and, and utilising this and, and we've seen one or two examples of it it does seem I, I'm not quite sure what the what the obstacle is but there certainly, there certainly is an obstacle to parties really remaking themselves in a, in, in a, 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 a very substantial way but I'm absolutely sure that the that a political party in the future which does manage to transform itself in this way and actually take full advantage of these new energies and these new forms of organisation, such a party could be formidable 
um, particularly if it's allied to some of the other things we've been talking about and Robert's talk about the changing party finance and things of that kind I mean these it, it, it's actually trying to it is about trying to get energy back into politics at the moment the way our politics is organized uh, often seems to drain energy out of out of the population out of the citizens and what we need is ways of putting you know of of of, of channeling that energy into uh, uh, ways that can actually change our, 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 our politics. So, in many ways, you know, this is a uh, it's an old-fashioned democratic agenda, but actually, it's also a very new agenda, um, which has some very new features about it, and that's what makes it uh, makes it exciting. Okay. So, can I have uh, those two on the end there, you and you? Yes. And uh, with apologies to everyone else who wants to ask questions, these may be the last two questions because we will have to draw to a close at some point. But, yeah. Hi, I'm Louis Woodall. I'm a member of the centre-left think tank, the Young Fabians. It seems to me that the values of the left are the same. So you've got equality, solidarity, freedom from, freedom from unemployment, freedom from poverty. Uh, but the means seem to be old-fashioned as well. So we had a brief moment a few, years ago, a few years ago in Britain where Ed Miliband was talking about pre-distribution, which sounded something new. And now we're going back to price controls and people talking for nationalization. Uh, I was wondering how can the left create uh, new means to achieve old ends? Okay, and I'll take the, take the second question as well, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, Robin Midlark from the University of Kent. Um, I'm kind of stuck with your remark on the lack of a proper analysis or an, a plural analysis of the current state of capitalism on the left and the lack of projects, concrete projects, to address the living situations of people, um, which is an accusation that can certainly not be made as much for academia, where we have more uh, plethora of, of kind of integrated interdisciplinary approaches like your own department does and several others. But I mean, what you're basically constating is a lack of ideas and, and, and the lack of thought on the left, which is an accusation that has been made from these premises from people like Susan Strange in the 80s, so it's not, nothing new. What I'm wondering is, is there then a different role for academia, which has now integrated more? Um, coming from Germany, knowing that people like Jürgen Habermas came out publicly against Merkel before the election, um, What's the role of academics? What's the role of departments? Should we take a more partisan stand, get more involved in public policy, or is that not so much our cup of tea? <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, the uh, new means to achieve old ends. Well, I mean, I think sometimes um, um, old means are also quite good. I mean, I don't... I don't uh, um, I don't think we should, that anything needs to be, uh, um, anything needs to be ruled out. I think that the, uh, um, I think what, what's, uh, what's odd is to think that we should, uh, that, that political parties or governments should, uh, should tie their hands about what, um, what is a, a appropriate or what is an appropriate tool to deal with a particular problem. I mean, the most um, successful governments uh, tend to be those which improvise and which find new ways to, uh, um, uh, to, 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 to deal with, with problems. And sometimes that's a mix of, of, of old methods and, 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 
and, uh, and new methods. So I don't think that um, um, I, I don't think we need to be too prescriptive about um, saying that uh, uh, th that we can only we can only use certain methods uh, in to, to, to achieve certain ends. I mean, I think you know sometimes price controls are. Uh, are a perfectly relevant response to a, a to a particular situation. The, um, I mean, the, the uh, whether it, it, it's wise in the particular case which Ed Miliband um, proposed it, that, that's a matter of, that that can be a matter for debate. But the idea that I mean, you had loads of people immediately come on. Um, in, on the media and say this was bad economics or it was economically illiterate well I mean economics within economics there are a huge number of arguments for price controls in certain circumstances they've been advocated by economists since the year dot for to deal with certain problems so the idea that we we have a consensus now where um, uh, the economic wisdom is that uh, price controls are always and in all circumstances to be resisted is a complete nonsense and yet that's the attempt of that particular discourse to suggest that um, uh, price controls have to be ruled out because somehow they're bad economics so I would say the, the critical thing is the political judgment as to what the, what the goal is and what the most effective means then of achieving uh, that, that, that goal are. Um, and um, on the, the question of universities, well, um, well, I've always, I mean, there's a place for scholarship and um, and pure research and so on, but I've actually always believed that uh, um, that teaching in universities is a privilege and that uh, people that teach in universities should also be prepared to engage as citizens in a wider way in the society. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that they have to belong to particular political parties or, or, or um, push the line of a particular political party but I think it does mean they should be prepared to engage in democratic debate and to be prepared to address a range of audiences and to be interested in the quality of debate within their society and to be prepared um, I mean sometimes to be placed in rather awkward situations. I mean, it's, it's quite easy, it seems to me. Um, it's, it's quite easy for academics to retreat into uh, impenetrable discussions within, uh, uh, w w within the academy, and which are very often very gratifying and, and um, uh, instructive for the people taking part, but which don't actually uh, have much impact outside. I'm, I'm not at all against having um, highly technical and abstruse uh, discussions at the very highest level possible within universities, but I also think it's, 
incumbent on everybody that teach and, and, and indeed across all the, the whole range of subjects so it's not just social sciences and humanities but the sciences and engineering as well that actually what we need is the ability of people to communicate about their subjects about um, about the knowledge that we have as a society and how it can be used to uh, improve our societies obviously there will be disagreements um, and that's, but that's partly what democracy is about we need, we need contestation but we need honest contestation and we need people to be able to draw on the full range of, of knowledge that is available and that knowledge needs again to go back to the you know, one of the main themes of this evening um, it, that knowledge needs to be made available to the widest number of citizens it's no good just having debates among the elites um, we have to find uh, we have to find ways one, one of the um, one, one of my formative experiences actually when as, as, a, as, as a young lecturer when I went to uh, Sheffield um, at that time um, there was a uh, um, uh, there was still what was called a, um, an adult education department in the university they've all been renamed now and called quite different things that department ran um, uh, classes uh, for trade unionists um, from Derbyshire miners the Yorkshire miners uh, ICI shop stewards in Doncaster the fire brigades union a number of other unions were involved there was a, a day release scheme which was negotiated with the employers they came to the university for a day a week I spent a whole day a week teaching um, these classes we, we, we discussed a whole range of topics in politics and economics there was no exam involved um, but it was a uh, um, and for me it was an intensely rewarding experience to be involved in that kind of thing um, these days in universities uh, heads of department would refuse to allow their young colleagues to, uh, to spend a day a week um, on that they'd say you have to write an article for the next research excellence framework or whatever and, and I think the professionalisation of universities in that way makes it more difficult particularly for younger academics I mean academics like me can uh, um, have much more freedom how we spend our time but younger academics it's much more difficult but I do think the argument needs to be made within universities that universities need to be much more open and transparent and much more engaged with the, uh, um, uh, the communities they are and this isn't just about um, serving business it's serving, it's serving the democracy it's serving the wider the whole community that's for me the most important thing that universities should be doing thank you very much um, so again apologies to those who also wanted to ask a question but I think we, we have to finish there just, just to remind you Andrew's going to be outside um, uh, 
signing uh, books, um, but I don't think you necessarily have to buy a book in order to ask your final burning question, so he will be available there uh, for a short period uh, at the end of this lecture. So can I just now ask you to join me in thanking him for both a very perceptive lecture and for addressing questions across such a very wide range um, tonight. So thank you very much. Andrew.